At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 659th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the urban farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm really excited tonight. Normally, it's just Bill and I doing this, but I think Bill and I got a little bit underwater with this whole companion planting thing, and we brought in an expert. And so we are here with Kari Spencer. Welcome, Kari. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me. You bet. You bet, you bet, you bet. And welcome, Bill. Thanks for joining us at Always. We, We always love doing these. So let us start with what is companion planting, Kari? Well, it is planting things together that help and support each other for mutual benefit. Okay, so, you know, that can mean a lot of different things. Huh? Right? <laughs> so there's not any one just, you know, real easy definition, and there are a lot of ways to do it, a lot of opinions about it. And, you know, really, it's it's a big experiment. Oh, got it. <laughs> Well, before we started recording, I said I probably don't do a whole lot with companion planting, at least not consciously. But then you kind of pointed out, well, I probably do a lot of it because I just let nature be in my yard. Oh, yeah. Nature's great at companion planting. Right? (laughs) Yeah. We usually don't see things growing in nice, neat, organized rows in nature, (laughs) do we? (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. There's no such thing as a straight line in nature that's for sure yeah yeah so so if nature does it and the plants grow well that way then you know we can mimic that in our own gardens for sure hey bill what have you seen any companions growing in your garden these days well you know the most popular form of that i think is the three sisters oh yes right corn squash and beans and so you know the squash have big leaves and they cover the soil almost completely underneath your corn so there's no weeds and the beans come up through there and they don't have anywhere to go. So they climb up the corn stalks. And so there's this synergy physically that make them really great companions. And somebody figured this out, you know, we don't know how far back. And it's become a popular meme here in the Southwest. So that's probably the biggest. Right. And uh, then the squash comes along afterwards and kind of shades right, the ground, right? Right. Right. I was in Mexico City this summer in the uh, Chinampas Gardens. That have been they're going there since nine hundred. Are and those so, the ones? Are those the floating gardens? Well, they started that way. Uh huh. You know, it was like waist deep water, and they would dig the mud up out of the bottom, and then put it on sticks originally, and things that were probably actually floating. But after a while, they just kept doing. They've been doing it for nine hundred years or whatever, a thousand years, and so you know they're finally all grounded, and it's more like Venice. They're just little canalways wow. in between these incredible gardens, but they still, in order to fertilize, just get in 
up to their chest and dig out this beautiful, rich, black volcanic mud and they put it on their gardens. Oh, interesting. And they, they were using three sisters. I saw spectacular examples of that there. And I think they do it just because it's easier. It all works. Right. Yeah. Kari, any, got any favorites in companion planting? Well, I just want to add on to the, the three sisters garden. Another benefit of that is that corn is a heavy feeder of nitrogen. It needs a lot of nitrogen. Oh, yes. And so the beans are nitrogen fixers. So the beans get a trellis out of the corn and the corn gets nitrogen from the beans. So I kind of love that. Yeah, it's 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 an amazing concept when you think about it. There's just so many benefits to to growing those three plants together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I th- I think that's really neat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people will do companion planting for other benefits, like a lot of times people will plant aromatic herbs around their other plants to help repel insects. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's endless uses to companion planting. Yeah. But I have a question. Yeah. Do carrots really love tomatoes? <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question. I don't know the answer to that, but that is the name of a book that was published in 1998 on companion planting. It was like the first one that came out, I think, wasn't it, Bill? Well, I think it was out before that. If I remember correctly, maybe that was just another printing or an update oh, yeah. to it or whatever. But yeah, and that was just one of the prime examples in there of, of companion planting. And I think people, you know, to be honest, have figured out a lot of synergies that we don't know about. You know, we're still, the biochemistry of soil is still such a mystery. What do they say? There's more kinds of living things in a tablespoon of soil than there are people on the planet or something. Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. Like and so how yeah. all of that gets affected, we don't, we don't know. And, and it is generally recognized that if you plant your carrots right next to your tomatoes, they'll both do better. And I think that's kind of the idea behind companion planting. Right. You'll get more than you would have out of either one as far as your crops had they been alone. So, yeah. Well, and you know, so I'm, I'm on this article on almanac.com on companion planting and some of the benefits, deterring pests, attracting beneficials. But let's actually talk about that. I know this is not quite companion planting, but you know, one of the things that I get a lot of is emails from people and say, what is this bug? How do I kill it? You guys got any thoughts on that? Well, you might want to check and make sure that it's a bug you don't want in your garden for one thing. Right. Because sometimes the the scariest looking bugs are actually the most beneficial ones that, yeah. that we have. And secondly, you know, you if you kill one, <laughs> there's going to be another one right behind it. Right. It's a losing battle, I think, to really just try to exterminate bad bugs and keep yeah. the good ones. That's it's a really difficult thing to do. But we can what? attract beneficial insects that feed on the ones that aren't as beneficial to our gardens. Yeah. And we do that by planting companion plants of pollinators, right? Yeah, that's one of the ways. Yeah, we can plant things that bees like, like yep. basil flowers. Basil makes beautiful flowers that attract bees like crazy. Yeah, all, all the herbs, all the aromatic herbs, when they go to flower, man, the pollinators are all over them. Mm-hmm. We can plant, well, alyssum is a plant that <laughs> is real pretty that people plant in their gardens. And it is one of the plants that a lot of beneficial insects like to use for their nurseries. Mm. 
Yeah, so they'll use that to lay their eggs and then you'll have those beneficial insect in your garden. So, so you get two things. You get those beautiful flowers and you get <laughs> beneficial insects. Oh, plus they smell great more, more oh, yeah, often than do. not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, they can. Yeah. You know what? When I was in 2002 and 2003, when I was uh, going through Arizona State University to get my degree, one of the things that I did was farm my front and backyard. And I always took lots of flowers to the farmer's market and they were the first thing that went. So I have the beneficials for attracting pollinators and they look pretty. And plus I made more money on them. So just saying. (laughs) Business idea right there. There you go. (laughs) And shade regulation. So planting. So these are more benefits of companion planting, shade regulation, planting things. You know, one of the things I learned about five years ago here in the front yard of the urban farm is in the summertime, the ground temperature at ground level was like 140 degrees underneath the sweet potatoes and cowpeas that I had growing out front. It was 89 degrees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's real. that's another benefit of companion planting, especially here in the desert. Oh, sure. And you can plant tall things on the West side of plants right? that don't like that afternoon heat. If you lived yep. in a, live in a really hot climate. So, you know, it seems like what we're saying is that the benefit to companion planting is that it gets us outside of focusing on a crop by itself that we mm. want to grow. I mean, and that's where we all start, right? I want that's carrots beautiful. or I want tomatoes or whatever. And so companion means, oh, what am I going to plant around it? Are there things that could help it or not or shade it or whatever? And so that's probably the benefit of uh, thinking about companion planting. I was just reading the new Seed Savers Exchange catalog and Diane Ott-Wheely, who was one of the co-founders of Seed Savers Exchange, which is the largest seed saving organization on the planet. I think they have more really? members. Yeah, by far. Oh, all right. Their catalog is like a textbook size, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's incredible. And in the new catalog, she wrote an article on companion planting. And so I was looking at it, you know, thinking about the show. And what I just realized is that her, guess what her favorite companion is? Please. A volunteer. Any volunteer. Those are her favorite companions. And they come up all over the place and they're unpredictable, you know, and we've all had that experience where the volunteers are just like, wow. After a while, you learn to look for them and she has made them sacred sort of. So, yeah. That's one of the things for decades. So I've been gardening here for 32 years at the urban farm and I never pull a plant out until I know what it is. And, you know, it's gotten to the point now where I have a pretty good idea of what, you know, what a plant this size is going to turn into, but still things show up. And so, you know, you really want to make sure that before you say, oh my gosh, that's a plant that's got to go. You make sure that you know what it is because it might be time. Well, I, I made that mistake. I always, come on, you have to be honest. You still make that mistake sometimes. So I I st- last yeah. summer I did, I thought, I forgot, you know, and then I saw this stuff coming up and I go, ah, oh, rip, rip. And then I go, oh no, that was my right. crop, you know? Yeah. You yeah. know what? I, fennel. Fennel is a very interesting crop here in the low desert. I have fennel growing wild in the front yard here at the urban farm. And a few years ago, I pulled up the bulb, not realizing that the bulb recreates itself from the bulb. So if you leave some fennel bulbs in, bulbs in the ground next year, you get more fennel. So like that. How many years did it take you to learn that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't that what gardening's about? And I think, yeah. so I, again, if you're going to get involved in companion planting, you know, it's, what is it, that old Zen saying, right? Beginner's mind. Mm. 
and just look more and try to figure out what's going on and notice the things that that do well next to each other and come up with your own list of companion plants in your yard because i'm sure it's different in some ways than the one that i'll come up in my yard right yeah yeah exactly carrie says what about my cow peas with flint corn future possibility i don't know why it needs to be in the future although i wouldn't plant it this time of year but kari well i mean it's worth experimenting with for sure <laughs> and they, it should work do they grow at the same time i mean do they <laughs> um yes they actually do so cow peas are summertime crops so why not put them together it yeah that's that's fine to do i don't think there's anything that you could do necessarily wrong there right. are sometimes people will say don't do this or don't do that but there's a lot of do's and don'ts in gardening that you know a lot of the do's don't work for me and a lot of the don'ts <laughs> do so right. <laughs> just, just play well, with it and and if you think it might work give it a try it might work mm -hmm. that's how we you know discover the the juice because you know even if you you know you and I Kari live what 10 miles apart but both in the valley here in the low desert, things are going to work differently at your house than they are at mine. Oh, absolutely. That's so true. Yeah. There's no two gardens that are, that are exactly the same. The growing right. conditions are different, even in gardens that are next to each other sometimes. Yeah. So never say never. That's right. You know, I well, but, but I think she's hit upon a, a theme that is big. And that is almost all that I've been getting really excited about growing grains. And it turns out grains have been used as a cover crop and to create carbon for compost. I think mm -hmm. even John Jevons, who you've had on your podcast, yep. talks about maybe 60 or 70% of all your land should be in something that's growing carbon so that you can make enough compost for your intensive beds if you're, if you're gardening that way. But along with grains, there've always been leguminous crops. Like, you know, so like corn would be the grain crop and cowpeas mm -hmm. would be the legume. And so if you, you look all through the history of agriculture and all over the world where it's practiced, you'll find examples of those two things, a grain and a legume being either used in rotation or right next to each other or interplanted. And so I, you know, she's onto something and I, that's yeah. why I would try it. Now, if it were me doing it, and this is just a hint, get a, a hundred different varieties of cowpeas and try it and see right. which one works right where you are. Yeah. You know, and be like Greg, then it just comes up and grows every year. You don't even have to take care of it. And so, and that's giving you benefit every year, right? Cooling yeah. off the soil. Yep. It's fixing nitrogen. And last night, in fact, last night I was packaging little packets of uh, great American seed up cow peas to hang out at, uh, to hand out at the uh, fruit tree program here next month. And I probably harvested eight pounds of them this year and they're not, teeny. You're not dressing up like Santa Claus and handing them out, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm in red today. So uh, let's see here. Participant 369227, they didn't put their name in, they put a number. Would you recommend planting a pottager style garden for full benefit of companion planting? Pottager sure. garden Pottager garden is, is simply a vegetable plot which follows the principles of garden design to create an area that is not only ornamental, but edible. Uh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, you yeah. got three thumbs up there. <laughs> yeah, I love beautiful gardens. I love the beauty of them, not mm -hmm. just what we eat. And 
I do want to just say something that kind of backtracks on what we were talking about, that there's no rules and you can just try anything. There mm-hmm. are a few things, though, that you might be a little bit cautious about when you're companion planting. Like? Well, like you, you want to try to plant things together that need similar growing conditions, similar water needs. If you plant something that really prefers to stay drier or something wetter, then maybe neither of them will do well or one will and the other won't. Mm-hmm. You might want not want to plant things together that are susceptible to similar soil diseases, or you might, for an example, as a disease that two plants have that you could potentially grow together, but you might not want to. Potatoes and squash both are susceptible to blights, mm. right? And so you might grow them together, but you might also think, well, I've had a problem with blight. Maybe I don't want to give the blight two things that it likes to eat. Yeah. Or you might not want to put dill with carrots because both of them can be damaged by carrot flies, right? So if you put those together, then you're just doubling up on what the carrot flies Mm -hmm. are going to flock to. So, but, uh, you know, that being said, (laughs) there's no rules, just maybe some things to to be, to be wise about, to be smart about as you're as you're considering your companion plantings and you can't possibly know everything when you're first starting with companion planting, you never will know everything. So Mm -hmm. you may not be able to rule out all of the plants that might not do well together, but those are actually not that many. So don't worry about it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, one of the things that I do here and I recently from Zach, Zach Lokes, who wrote a book called The Edible Landscape Solution. What I've done here at the Urban Farm for 32 years is called an old growth food forest. Because over the years, I've planted open pollinated seeds that just plant themselves over and over and over again. So a lot of what happens here at the Urban Farm is very biodiverse, which do we have bugs here at the Urban Farm? We actually have bugs here at the Urban Farm. Do we have a bug problem? I've never really had a bug problem here at the Urban Farm because of that massive biodiversity. And things, you know, as Bill, meant, as Bill mentioned earlier, you know, things just come up where they come up, you know, yeah. and they're, they're self, self-perpetuating, which let nature be in your yard. Oh, oh, sure. I mean, you have to define what a bug problem is. Right. Because... You know, the pesticide companies want you to think a bug problem is a bug showing up in your yard right? or a hole in one of your Swiss chard leaves, right? (laughs) But that's not really all that problematic in nature when something gets a little bit munched on. Mm -hmm. So I don't consider it too much of a problem in my, in my garden either. Just kind of let things, let things be. Now, There is occasionally a time when I uh, am not very happy about a bug that has, (laughs) (laughs) right? That has overeaten, but then I have to consider why are they here? What are they doing? What's their job? Is this plant already sick? Is this plant at the end of its life cycle already? Mm -hmm. What is, what is actually happening? Is it a bug problem or is it just a natural bug phenomenon? Oh, I like that. A bug phenomenon. A bug phenomenon. Well, I, I was thinking that you're, you're absolutely right, Kari. There's no real rules, you know, but you have to do be careful a little bit. But there are disasters 
right? If you make the wrong mistake and you go out and it's like, oh, God, you know. You know, the, the good thing about a disaster, though, Bill, is you know what not to do next time. Right. That's number one. And then the other one is that if you're a seed saver, you know, maybe that bug comes, Corey, and eats your plant, and it eats the next one, and eats the next one, and you're just totally devastated. But the one on the end, for some reason, it doesn't like to eat. So that's the one you save your seeds from. Right. Right. So that disaster becomes your opportunity to select for something that will really work and help you. And I know that's the, the base of Joseph Lofthouse's philosophy, his land race gardening. Mm -hmm. is that he just selects things that work and that he likes to eat. Those are the only two criteria. Everything else he just lets go and lets them find their own companions in a sense. So right. I was thinking about, yeah, there's no rules, but you could like wipe out your whole. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> well, and again, you know, that's how we learn. Yeah. I, I, I had to giggle. I get, uh, I get this Facebook message on my phone, right? Somebody mentioned me on Facebook and she said, I always, whenever I kill a plant, I always think back what Greg Peterson told me a long time ago. And that's that I've killed more plants than you have. You all have, I promise. Yeah. And that's your badge of honor, right? Right. Because that's <laughs> how we learn. Okay. Now we don't do that again. Yeah. And, oh, you know, but we do do it again sometimes even, <laughs> you know, that's the hard part. Yeah. All right. Let's see a couple of questions here. Fawn says, is there a companion plant to grow with zucchini? to prevent squash vine borer? No. <laughs> Bill knows that one definitively. And well, I, you know, I nev never say never, you know, but mm -hmm. if you can find one, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. You know, I, what did we used to do? There were a, a bunch of techniques for, so what a, a technique for that might be to plant a plant that those borers like even better. Oh, yeah in a row next to it you know and sometimes like when we had a whole field at native seed search farm we could learn which direction the cucumber beetles were coming from they were coming from this outer field and they were coming this direction so if you planted a crop a whole wide row of things that you just didn't care about that they could have then the inner rows just didn't end up being as destroyed and so you know, that's, you got to think along those lines too. You may have to sacrifice some. That is you know, a you're type not going to win. Companion. Right. Yeah. That is a type of companion plant. Yeah. You can also think about their Hess life cycle. I like to plant my zucchini kind of late here in Phoenix, like, mm. like July, right? <laughs> because that kind of helps me to miss the squash bugs that come out a little earlier. Oh. Right. I try to. They don't to, like. I try to outwit them. <laughs> they don't like the heat, right? They're snowbirds. They get out and go up to Flagstaff or something. <laughs> right. Yeah, they, you know, they come out earlier and they do their thing, and then I try to plant a little bit after that. But yeah, I've not found any any kind of a companion plant that will fight them. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Got it. You need a companion bird. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, Fawn says she's in Boston. She can't plant zucchini too late. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. that's true. That's just an example of something that I do, but it's also an example of ways of thinking of 
exactly. You know, Think thinking outside these of the box. things through. What's your pest? What is its life cycle? When does it come out? When it, there are a lot of ways to get around these pests. <laughs> well, right. isn't one of the ways? And I've always been told this, Corey. I'd be interested in your answer. Is that just don't plant zucchini in a place that you planted it before? That if you want to move around, find completely totally new places because that sort of insect pressure or disease pressure builds up over a few years they get real nature is smart right they go oh we know it's going to be back right and they get it seems like they're getting ready for it so is that true uh -huh. have you noticed that yeah that is absolutely true because those little squash bugs they can they can overwinter if you have mulch down or anything like that mm. and they you know and they'll just reappear but you know same thing with tomatoes you move them around because of soil borne diseases that they can be susceptible to yeah we we move our plants around for a lot of reasons one of them is for pests one of them's for nutrients so we don't deplete soil um, but it, yeah it's a good idea to move to move things around and greg you said nature kind of moves things around on your in my yard your yeah. garden right yep yeah, so you see that in action just naturally. Carrie says, fantastic, thanks. Going back to the cowpeas, she says, four kinds of cowpeas so far from homegrown seeds. Yes. <laughs> Outstanding. <Excellent. laughs> Sue says, I was reading some books that there are some plants not to put together and some that you should put together. Example, tomatoes and basils are good together. Well, they go well in pasta. <laughs> right? Go in pasta sauce. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. No, I think there's something really to that. So basils are very aromatic herb. Yeah. You know, and those volatile oils, you know, can have a tremendous effect on insects and things. That's one of the things that's happened. And that's a really well-known companion. Yeah. Well, you any know of what? the aromatic herbs are, are knock your socks off smelly, but they attract the beneficials. Right. I'm... If I remember right, so I put, I did quite a bit of research and when I had my seed company years ago, I even put it on the packet, the back of the packet companion, that uh, planting, that was a, but if I remember right, there were just as many dislikes as there were likes. In other words, you know, carrots like or love tomatoes. But I remember on a, in for a lot of things is don't plant this other plant next to it. And I'm having a hard time remembering what some of those were, but I think that's a, so, you know, if you're listening, this is something else about companion planting is it can teach you things that your plants don't like for some reason mm -hmm. that, that could even stunt their growth or their, the yield that you might get if you plant near them. So I just can't think of one right now, but that's not unusual this time of night. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the ones that pops into my mind is people say don't plant beans and peas with onions and garlic because the onions and garlic supposedly can stunt the growth oh, of the beans and peas. And right. there's a lot of gardeners that anecdotally say, yeah, that's true. I don't know that anybody's ever tested it scientifically. A lot of these things that people notice are anecdotal, but if a, if a lot of people a lot of gardeners are saying it, there might be some truth to it. So a little bit of truth in everything, probably. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Kiersey, this is for you, Bill. Could I plant flower, corn, and or sorghum in alternate rows with upland rice for protection of the rice? Or do they have different nutrients, sun, and moisture requirements? Boy, I don't know. Uh, you know corn, corn and sorghum are really close. 
Yeah. They look the same or whatever. So just so they're not shading or crowding, you know, I don't know what you mean by planting them close. But yeah, try it. Upland rice, you know, that's our new toy, you know. But you know, what we're finding with the small grains, you know, the so I've been growing like the heritage and ancient grains and it's a lot of wheat and barley and things like that, but of all of those on a small scale, if you want to put, you know, the time and energy in to really get something out that you can use, it's got to be upland rice. They say is the most, you know, beneficial that way. That we and we don't have that culture in the United States at all. And by upland rice, I mean the kind that grows in a garden. You don't need a rice paddy. You just grow uh, it in regular rows like you would wheat or barley. Got it. Right. So sounds great, Kirsty. I'd try it. You know, this is what we're. We're all doing now is sort of reinventing, and I just don't have any reference to somebody that's done that. And uh, you know, while we're on grains, tell us a little bit about the grain trials at Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, would you? Well, we, you know, over about four years, five years, six years, and in, in it got started. We've been uh, systematically going through ancient and heritage grains to see which ones work best for us. It's the same story that every gardener has in their own backyard. What variety works best for you? Mm -hmm. And with grains, you know, we've got there are 30,000 varieties of, of wheat that we're growing in the United States, what? probably in 1900. Yeah, the diversity is just unbelievable. Wow. And then we've got, you know, great land race varieties like Red Fife and Marquis that have been around that, you know, blew up to a million acres or more during, you know, the, from the mid 1800s forward and so we know there's a lot and white sonoran was one of those that worked in the southwest so we know there's a lot of this stuff around and we don't know it's almost none of those older varieties are grown anymore and they were developed at a time before chemicals mm -hmm. you know there before fertilizer was widespread and before irrigation in a lot of cases they were they were farming dry land mm -hmm. and so as we face the future wow wouldn't that be great? Low input, no chemicals. We can do it organically and maybe without irrigation. So we're trying to find all these grains. So how do you do that if you have thousands of them? So we've got a program. We've got about 285 volunteers that have helped us wow. search through hundreds of varieties and grow them in, all, in different areas all over the Rocky Mountain West to see which ones work where. And it doesn't and so, have to be specifically the Rocky Mountain West, does it? No, no. Are you oh, kidding? Yeah. We've shipped them all over the world. When we focus on our program, that's what we focus on. But people get them all over. And so we're entering a new phase of that program now where we have it so anybody can have access to those grains. And I have two hundred, over 200 of them up now on the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance website that you can order. And, you know, we don't believe in selling seeds, but we're charging for them. And it's sort of a handling charge to yeah. help us run the program. And believe me, we're, it does not pay for what we do, <laughs> but it helps the nonprofit in yeah. a sense. And so, but you can have access to things like einkorns and emmers and spelt, you know, and these are grains we found that have less gluten sensitivity Yeah. as you get back into the older ones. And, and I think part of the popularity is being driven by that, people that have had you know, problems with their guts. So, oh, and I'll just say that's, that may be the door in, but the reason to be there and to live there is that it's the most gratifying thing I've ever grown in my yard. Mm -hmm. I just love my grains and I love to make my own bread and my own pasta and they taste so good. It's just incredible. We've been washbrained into thinking white bread, <laughs> you know, and white right. pasta are, are the, it doesn't matter how much you, you know, knead them or, or make them into cake or whatever you want to do, man. If you can start with a freshly ground heritage grain as your base, it's just off the charts. Uh, yeah.
Awesome. Thank you for that, Bill. Let's see. Cindy says, I plant hollyhocks, soak the soil underneath the hollyhocks. The squash beetles run up the stalks. Then they are washed off to collect them uh, and spray them with soapy water. That's ingenious for sure. Yeah. Mechanical control. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I actually have a question for you. I'm going to throw this out to both of you, actually, and then I'm going to step away for a minute because I have a surprise that uh, Kari has for us here that I want to share about as well, and I want to grab it. So the question is from Huey. How about tomatoes and peppers? And I'll be right back. Well, tomatoes and peppers, they're related, so they can be affected by the same diseases and the same pests. And so a lot of people say don't don't grow them together, but you know they do they do have similar growing conditions that they need and so again I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out necessarily but yeah they are they are very closely related and you know I've been I've got a big row it's about two and a half feet wide it's about I don't know 50 feet long and last year again I grew peppers and tomatoes in that row and they were interspersed at some points and I can't see that there's any problem with that now I didn't have any disease problems. And so, you know, and I know peppers are more prone to aphids. And I've even planted peppers in a greenhouse with tomatoes mm. because all the aphids went to the peppers, mm-hmm. all of them. It seemed, I mean, you can't even see the green. They're just thick, you know, up and down the stems and all over. But then they left my tomatoes alone. So maybe, you know, there's maybe there's something with that. I don't know. Nice, nice. Well, so something magical happened here in in my household here about six weeks ago. I don't even know if you know about this, Bill, but something, I I get an email from Kari asking for a little bit of content for her new book. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So this is Kari's new book. Is it shipping yet, Kari? I know I have a copy of it, but can people actually buy it? Yes, they can. They can get it on Amazon or they can get it at greatamericanseedup.org. We have it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have yeah, it perfect. there. Yeah. Perfect. Just um, in time for Christmas, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you might have to uh, you might have to come and pick it up if if you want it here in time for Christmas, but this is the Vegetable Gardening Gardening Journal a weekly tracker and logbook. Tell me a little bit about it, Kari, would you? Sure. Well, this book is not just a journal. It's a super journal because it has a lot of it has a lot of information about growing plants, growing mm-hmm. a vegetable garden in it, mm-hmm. and a lot of tips. And it's a weekly tracker and it has room for you to write all the kinds of notes that you might want to write as well as a tip every week. A garden tip for every week. It also has charts in it, lots of different charts about how to plant things. And it has a chart about flowers. I don't see a lot of information in vegetable right. gardening books sometimes about flowers. And there's there's a bunch of information about flowers in there. So cool. Yeah. So I'm awesome. pretty excited about it. Well, congratulations. Yeah. And Donna says, yay, Kari, nice book. So that is the... Vegetable Gardening Journal, a weekly tracker and logbook by Kari Spencer. You can get it on Amazon or greatamericanseedup.org. Thanks, awesome. Greg. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. And thank you both for joining me tonight. This is always uh, great fun to explore different seed topics. So I really appreciate both of you. And for those of you that are listening, 
actually, Fawn has a quick question for you. Is Kari's book for certain growing zones? No. Yeah. No, it is not. It is a, it's a general book. I don't break things down into seasons, really. I break them down into, I use different types of categories for seasonal chores. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, you know, do this in May, <laughs> we, we talk about when to do it using other types of criteria. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, and, and thank you for th- pitching me that, Val, Kari. Because what I was going to talk about next is all the work that we do here at Urban Farm and Urban Farm U. We, uh, it takes uh, an army of people. You're seeing three of us, but who you're not seeing is Belle and Janice and Renee and Taylor and Raymond. All of us doing work to produce all the content that we produce to you. And that takes some money. So if y'all wouldn't mind going to urbanfarm.org forward slash support us, there's some opportunities for you to either donate or to buy one of our courses. And the ball that you pitched to me a little while ago, Kari, was about how we design our courses. Our courses aren't for specific growing zones. Our courses, all of them, especially Growing Food, the Basics, are designed to teach you how to think about gardening in your area. And I don't know if you've heard this, Kari, or not, but Raymond, says, who's been through the Master Gardener program a few times, says, wow, if I would have just done Growing Food the Basics, I wouldn't have had to have gone through the Master Gardener program because apparently Growing Food the Basics is a more complete version of how to get your garden going. So, And Kari is one of the, the main designers of that course. So you can find that and information about all our courses at urbanfarm.org forward slash support us. And if you want to make a donation, you can do that too for tonight. You can make a one-time donation or a ongoing donation. So for any and all of that, we appreciate it. Thank you. Any last thoughts, Bill? I think if you think about it in the end, you are the best companion to your garden. So spend more time in it. Nice. Kari? I ditto that thought. The best uh, fertilizer is the gardener's shadow. Oh, very good. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you. Thank you all very much for joining us. And we will catch you next month. Actually, next week, we've got our garden chat. And then we'll, we'll start it up again with seeds next month. So thank you for joining us. Have a great, wonderful holiday. And we will see you next month. Thanks for joining us. Bye, guys. Thank you, Karin. Bye. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves 
to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.